Birthday greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, program coordinator of the Institute. Thank you for joining us for tonight's book talk on contemporary Asian American activism, building movements for liberation with co-editors Diane Fugino and Robin Rodriguez, uh, who will be joined by two book contributors and activists, Eddie Zhang and Jadid Tariq. Uh, bringing together grassroots organizers and scholar activists, Contemporary Asian American Activism, uh, published by the University of Washington Press. It presents lived experiences of the fight for transformative justice and offers lessons to ensure the longevity and sustainability of organizing. Uh, after our speakers make their initial presentations on their uh, respective chapters, uh, they will be joined by Russell Young, our uh, editor of the Cuneiform Academic Journal for the Institute, who will engage the, everyone in a dialogue conversation. Uh, Diane C. Fujino is professor of Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara. Her research examines Japanese and Asian American activist history within an a Asian American radical tra tradition and shaped by Black power and the third world decolonization. Uh, her recent publications include Nisei uh, Radicals, the Feminist Poetics and Transformative Ministry of Mitsuye Yamada and Michael Yatsutake, uh, which works against the trope of Nisei assimilationism to reveal a legacy of Nisei radicalism. Uh, she is the co-editor of a special issue of Amerasia Journal on Asian American activism uh, studies, and currently the co-editor of the Journal of Asian American Studies. Uh, Robin Magali Rodriguez is professor and chair of Asian American Studies at University of California, Davis, she is also the founding faculty director of the Bulusan Center for Philippine X Studies, the first of its kind in the University of California system focused on Philippine X experience in the United States. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez is a immigration slash migration expert. Her writing has focused significantly on the Philippine labor diaspora, but she also examines uh, migration from a comparative perspective, particularly linking and relating the migration experiences of of Asians and Latinos. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez is currently at work at several other book projects, including on the Filipino immigrant and migrant <clears throat> communities in the US from the 2000s to present and an anthology on race, gender and contemporary global labor migration. And I just found out today that she has an eight acres farm in Lake County that she's gonna retire to soon uh, at the end of the year. Uh, Eddie Zhang is the president and founder of the New Breath Foundation and works to mobilize resources to support Asian American and Pacific Islanders uh, harmed by violence and the unjust immigration and criminal justice systems. Uh, a 2019 to 21 Rosenberg Foundation Leading Edge Fellow and a 2015 to 2017 Open Society Foundation Soros Justice Fellow. Uh, he has served as co-director of the Asian Prisoner Support Committee and co-founded the first ever ethnic studies program in San Quentin State Prison Roots. Uh, this particular program was actually covered in the uh, PBS docu-series uh, in 2020, Asian Americans. Uh, Eddie is the subject of the award-winning documentary, Breathing, the Eddie Zhang story, and he was featured in the December 2021 New Yorker article, An Education While Incarcerated. Uh, Javi Tariq is a co- is a co-founder and senior staff member of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance and treasurer of the National Taxi Workers Alliance. Uh, as a college student in Pakistan, uh, he was active in the student movement against the military dictatorship that he migrated to Germany and later to the United States. 
And over the years, he has organized numerous successful strikes, campaigns, and actions to promote economic and social justice for taxi drivers, a workforce that is 94% uh, immigrant and primarily uh, people of color. And I actually have seen the Workers' Alliance uh, protest in front of City Hall many, many days, uh, weekdays and weekends. And uh, he'll speak about uh, some of their victories this past year. And without further ado, please welcome Diane Fugino and Robin Rodriguez. We are very grateful um, to Russell Leong and Anthony and to the whole crew here. And thank you so much for hosting this book event. Um, we are very excited to be here. I'm Diane Fugino, and I'm speaking to you from Santa Barbara, California, lands and waters of the Chumash peoples. And um, Robin Rodriguez and I came together. Um, we are the co-editors of this anthology, and we came together, you know, concerned in this moment. This was around 2017 when there were so many vibrant social movements happening, right, around Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives, climate justice, uh, housing issues, student debt, so many things that were really important that people were dealing with. And yet there seemed to be very little on Asian Americans. There was either the invisibility, which we are so used to um, uh, impacting our communities, or there was the promotion in the media of right-wing issues um, with showing Asian Americans against affirmative action or in support of Asian American police um, who had killed a, a, a black um, a young man, uh, uh, Akai Gurley. And so these were concerning to us. And we thought, well, this is, doesn't match our experiences, right? As longtime activists, as scholars who study and write about Asian American activism. And we really wanted to amplify the kinds of activism that has been happening in Asian American communities for a long time and in the current moment. And so we wanted to gather activists uh, organizers and activist scholars to come in dialogue and to showcase the kind of work that's happening, as well as to think about strategies for change and to think about the, the questions of how we create change, which is a really, really difficult question. And doing so requires that we foreground organizing knowledge, the knowledge of those who are organizing across the long haul, who are thinking strategically, who are figuring out how to intervene in issues of political economy, right, as we move from, uh, say, the welfare state to neoliberalism, um, and, and how we intervene in these kinds of moments, how we intervene in these heightened moments of white supremacy. Um, and so we uh, came together and uh, uh, organized to bring this this, this anthology into being. And we knew that it was so important to connect people um, in terms of social relations and to be in dialogue rather than just writing from our own home spaces or workspaces or organizing spaces. And so in January of 2019, pre-pandemic, we organized a symposium at UC Santa Barbara, my home campus, um, in to bring together the organizers and the uh, scholars to think through these issues. We had public um, uh, events and we also had closed door sessions where we got to talk and think and also had some writing workshops where we might think about how we might write and develop chapters because the writing is always very difficult even when people know the issues very deeply. 
And so at that symposium, we had Pam Tao Lee as our keynote speaker, and she's one of the contributors to this anthology. And she's been organizing since she was a college student in California and joined the Asian American Political Alliance and worked in the struggles for ethnic studies. She also worked with Ivor Kuhn and then turned to working in environmental justice struggles. So linking anti-racism with those with those planetary concerns. And um, we were so delighted to have her as the keynote and her chapter is very powerful in many ways. I think I will narrate some of the chapters that are in this book by thinking about some of the themes in Asian American activism. So one theme is solidarity. And it seems like Asian Americans in very generative ways are engaging in solidarity and coalitional work. And this is important as people think about this current moment with the heightened or heightened visibility of anti-Asian violence and, 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 and the campaigns for uh, against Asian, AAPI hate, right? That's the, that's the terminology that's being used. And this is really important work that has been done. Um, but at the same time, there are concerns that this heightens vulnerabilities to obscuring structural racism, to use this word language of hate, um, that, that seems to imply individual attitudes that individuals possess rather than structural problems of, in society, oppressive structures. And so we really wanted to get at these kinds of oppressive structures, structural racism. And there are many ways in which this happens. Eddie Zhang talks, and he'll be talking about uh, uh, violence in prisons and activism in prisons. Karen Umemoto looks at a juvenile justice um, intervention in Hawaii. And by doing so, it helps us to think about the ways in which uh, a need to rely on Kanaka Maoli or Native uh, Hawaiian epistemologies and cultural values in order to intervene in the, in the carceral system, right? And this also helps us to think about how we might resist settler colonialism and all its impacts with Native Hawaiians at extraordinarily high rates of incarceration. Um, we, we, we also, a second issue that's really important is collective leadership and the importance of nurturing social relationships um, and movement building. And Alex Tom just yesterday spoke about this so powerfully and looks at the ways in which um, taking care of the self is and can be connected to promoting collective movements. I think about Yuri Kochiyama, right? And we're speaking at the um, CUNY Forum, right, in New York. And she is such a model of, of thinking about human and human relations and hosting people and um, bringing people together as part of her movement work. Catherine Lee's chapter helps to bring together um, Eddie Zhang and Pam Tao Lee in her, in her work to learn from them, as well as to support the development of their chapters. And I think I wanna say just one more theme, which is really about internationalism and anti-imperialism and these third world solidarities. And this gets filtrated through multiple chapters in the book. So I just wanna say that the book has 12 chapters on a whole variety of themes from gentrification to political education, um, to student organizing. And um, I hope that you will check it out and that we are um, promoting East Wind Books of Berkeley as a distributor for our book. Good afternoon, everybody. It's my pleasure to be on this panel. And uh, it's good that uh, all very intelligent people, activists, uh, 
I, I, I will be learn more from you all guys. And so as a introduction, I had at the time from Pakistan and I'm working with the Tech Work Alliance since 1996. And since 1998, we incorporated New York Tech Work Alliance as a 501c3. In the beginning, people were saying us as a, like a worker center, but we call ourselves a union because uh, we wanted to give this uh, responsibility to the, to drivers and to the union also to to be stand on our own feet, to not getting any money from somewhere. So our uh, at this time, seventy five to eighty percent our revenue is coming through our membership. And the driver have this responsibility to make union stronger. At this time, we have over 30,000 members in our union. Over 100 countries, people are our members. So it's like a melting pot in New York City. So all drivers are with us. And among them, around 60 to 70% are Muslims from Africa, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and uh, some uh, other uh, Muslim countries. So our basic uh, fight is uh, fighting politically for the better life of uh, working class drivers. So we are uh, fighting for uh, their rights, respect, dignity, and uh, fairness, uh, and uh, for, for good income for those taxi drivers. So that's our uh, fight is uh, fights are going on. And previously we have a few strikes in 1998. We have a historic strike and where we, our name comes out. And also not, we are not only in uh, New York, we are a uh, national taxi worker alliance. We have uh, different uh, branches in different uh, states, which are uh, also running by the drivers. Our majority of our uh, office workers are also uh, drivers. So these unions are running by the drivers. And uh, we are also the part of uh, ITF, International Transportation Federation, whose headquarters is in England, so that we are uh, working with them too, uh, internationally for uh, taxi drivers. So during our, uh, this 26 years, uh, uh, we gave, we learn a lot and we, when a lot, we also lost a lot of things because uh, we don't have a one enemy. We have a multiple enemies who are fighting against us. Like, uh, this is, as I see while we are uh, organizing drivers and trying to make a union, we see there is a trend in America to break the unions. The company make their own unions to divide the workers in the same way that since uh, Uber start uh, in uh, San Francisco, Taxi Worker Alliance uh, knew what's the new things are coming. We are not against uh, technology, but we are against uh, unfair uh, uh, rules and regulation against drivers. So we want that uh, these companies should give uh, a fair share to the drivers who are uh, working very hard, who has to face uh, all kind of uh, incident and all kind of uh, assault and a lot of the things that the company should pay them fair. So since that time, we we start fighting against Uber company because 
we believe in the driver should have a benefit. Driver should have union. So to break our uh, our uh, uh, strength, Uber started uh, IDG, Independent Driver Guild, and Uber is uh, paying money to them, and the Uber share drivers all informations to this uh, to this organization, which is called IDG, that uh, they are keep telling to driver come become our member, we're going to help you, which is totally trying to divide us. But we are uh, uh, made a solidarity with Uber and Yellow Cab driver in New York City because we all have a one TLC license and the all drivers are fighting together. Like uh, uh, against Uber, we have uh, in uh, 2018, we won $86 million back to driver about wage theft. That Uber was just stealing money from drivers. And so then they have to pay back $86 million to back to the driver. Also still that case is going on. We are working with the Attorney General Leticia James that if we won that case, then Uber has to pay five times more money to the drivers which they steal from them from 2013 to 2017. Also, the biggest problem for the driver is in a Uber industry, that Uber and Lyft, they have a so big power, they can deactivate any driver whenever they want. So this is a big problem. For example, I bought a new car for $50,000, I got, and I'm going to pay off for five, uh, in five years and I have to pay the insurance, and I start driving a taxi with Uber, maybe after three months, after four months, Uber can deactivate me. But if they deactivate me, I'm out of job. So because of that, so many drivers are uh, underwater. Uber drivers are underwater because they cannot drive anymore. So we fight a case uh, against uh, Uber company, against the Department of Labor, that the driver should consider as an employee. Finally, we won one thing only all over in the United States, only in the New York, that if drivers are deactivated, driver can file unemployment. So that was the biggest uh, victory. And uh, when we won that after that uh, pandemic came, so driver was from March 2020 till uh, December 21, driver was getting unemployment. Otherwise, driver would starve to death. On the other hand, for the yellow cab drivers, we were fighting because of uh, their prices and predatory loans and uh, for other uh, reasons, because the Uber bombarded the uh, cars in, uh, in, in New York City. So because there used to be only 25,000, which um, raised to almost over 100,000 cars in New York City. So the yellow medallion's price go down from $1 million to only $65,000. And uh, 6,000 individual medallion owner, well, they got in big, big debts. Some people bought the medallion for 800,000, some bought 700,000, and the price plunged to only 65,000. So that was a, a big, big problem for drivers, for those individual drivers who collect the money from their relatives and save the money and buy the medallion for their retirement that they can keep working. Nine drivers did suicide in that three years. So Union was, Taxi uh, Worker Alliance was uh, fighting for the loan forgiveness for the drivers. 
the first time in Obama's time, when the housing crisis was there, government did not bail out the public. They bail out the banks. But that's why we wanted that they should bail out to drivers. And finally, after three and a half year struggle, our demonstrations, and we went to Washington, D.C., spoke in front of Congress. We went to Virginia, where it's united NCU and National Credit Union's headquarters is there. We went there, made a motorcade. We went to Albany State Office. So, and did hundreds of demonstrations in front of City Hall and in front of a mayor's residence. And finally, did a 15 days hunger strike. And in November, we won that. So, that was the biggest victory because anybody who even owes uh, 800,000, 700,000. Now they're going to pay only $170,000 and 30,000 uh, 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 New York uh, City will pay guaranteed letter. And then the, the other debt going to be uh, forgivable. So this is a big victory because driver, those families are having a, a peaceful uh, breath now. So this kind of work, we keep doing it. And nowadays we are uh, our office. Uh, this is the only office where we get over uh, twelve to fifteen thousand members coming yearly in our office for different uh, services and um, different uh, works. Uh, we win a lot of things, but we we lost one big uh, thing, which we we created a fund benefit fund for the drivers. That could uh, help uh, 30,000 drivers for uh, 22 benefits, which uh, uh, we lost in court. That was uh, uh, a big loss for us. But we are working on that. The city should, should create another, this kind of fund where driver at least uh, uh, can be comfortable when they are retired or when they are injured or when they are sick, that they can get some benefits uh, from that. So we have, uh, we win one campaign, we start other two campaigns. We win two campaigns, we start other four campaigns. So since 1998, we are continuously day and night uh, fighting for the justice for the better life of drivers. Such important work that the New York Taxi Workers Alliance is doing. Um, and next we have Eddie Zank. Oh, happy new breath, everyone. Uh, my name is Eddie Zhang. I'm the president and founder of the New Bright Foundation. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to contribute to the Asian American activist, activism uh, anthology. And, you know, my chapter really highlights the, this, the prison to leadership pipeline in a way that when we talk about activism, we don't normally associate with uh, Asian American activism within the prison industry complex. So my chapter really trying to focus in on capturing the history of some of the activism that has happened. And then for this chapter's purpose, really focusing on how Asian Prisoner Support Committee that is based in Oakland, California, has come into fruition and becoming a movement to address um, the impact of mass incarceration and deportation on the Asian American, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian community. 
right? And so for me, as someone that who was an immigrant and entered this, this, the system as a result of the harm that I committed, uh, I spent you know, 21 years of my life incarcerated. And through this journey, it was because I was exposed to uh, our elders that who have paid the way, who have engaged in activism, such as Yuri Kochiyama, the Richard Aoki, the Grace Lee Boggs, you know, in our community that uh, allow us the opportunity to be able to find ourselves in a space where we can uh, be um, activated in, 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 the, in where we were at, right, in the prison. So the chapter really kind of takes people to on a journey where you can see how one, the mass incarceration are impacting many of the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders and Southeast Asian as like an over, it's like overrepresented within the AHPI community. Uh, then because of the smaller numbers in comparison to the black and brown indigenous communities, uh, that's this coining of the tyranny in small numbers because of, of the contribution of the harm that modern minority men has kind of perpetuated in many ways. The people that who are impacted don't necessarily get the culturally competent resource they need uh, to rehabilitate themselves. And as a result, education was a primary uh, source for people to really get an understanding of their culture and history, therefore inform their identity in a way to address intergenerational trauma. And so do this a process, um, it was uh, Yuri Kochiyama and many other activists who are uh, students from the uh, universities and uh, in academia uh, to be able to start this activism uh, within the prison system in collaboration with some of the prisoners. And so part of the chapter will you will see, uh, you'll highlight uh, how the administration, the prison administration is, you know, punishing people that who wants to get an uh, studies, uh, Asian American studies curriculum inside a college program that is ran by volunteers, right? And then later on, how the Asian Prison Support Committee was able to uh, become a grassroots organization that who was supporting the currently and formerly incarcerated individual. And then eventually, post-incarceration, after I, I returned we enter society, how we went back into so San Quentin State Prison and start the first ever uh, ethnic studies program that really centers around uh, focusing on uh, teaching culture and history uh, as a way uh, for many of the impacted individuals to find a voice and find uh, a pathway for healing uh, in that space. And then uh, I think, you know, for us, uh, no matter where we at, you know, we are all part of this um, community that when, when we have encountered injustice, it, it doesn't, it's not excluding to, you know, who and where you can activate yourselves. And so I hope uh, people will get an opportunity to read, uh, not only, you know, about, uh, you know, the, the specific chapters about uh, you know, how prison can become a pipeline uh, to leadership and to activism and to healing, but then also kind of looking at some of the other contributors who are really talking about a plethora of 
a different activism in the Asian American community. Yeah, no, thank you, Eddie. And yes, hi everyone. Thank you all for, for joining us this evening, uh, this Earth Day. Uh, I just realized that uh, in my introduction earlier, Anthony uh, kind of focused on my, um, my academic sort of introduction. Uh, and I think I should just add that I'm also very much an organizer and an activist that have been organizing uh, probably longer than I've been in the university classroom as a university professor. And um, I currently uh, work uh, with the Asian American Liberation Network, which is based in the greater Sacramento region, an organization I also helped uh, co-found. It was an organization born out of the pandemic, actually. I could speak a little bit to that, but really, of course, this event is really focused on the book. And But I do feel like it's important for me to at least name the fact that I do approach this, and this is equally true for Diane, not as simply a scholar. Uh, both of us have been organizing. Uh, we organize alongside the work that we do in the university. Both of us re really engaged in uh, local struggles in the communities we live in, as much as we're also engaged in struggles on our campuses. And we both came to this book through, with that lens, both as kind of critical scholars, but also as people very much in, involved in the thick of struggle who wanted to be able to take, um, to bring our, in, our academic insights together with our organizing um, experiences to, uh, to uh, um, uh, in, when, when, when we uh, put together this anthology. So um, my contribution, in addition to co-writing the introduction to the anthology with Diane, I also wrote two separate uh, chapters of the anthology. The first is entitled Pete Wilson Trying to, to See Us All Broke, which is actually a line from Tupac's To Live and Die in LA. And um, it was on my own organizing as a student in college in the 1990s. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd actually always really wanted to write and reflect on the organizing I did as a student, uh, in part because I think that there is quite a bit of organizing that there was a lot of organizing that happened in the 1990s through the 2000s, really, that has yet to be fully um, uh, analyzed and, um, and written. So I thought that this uh, contributing a chapter to the book in this way would give me a chance to really sit down and kind of think through uh, what I experienced and some of the key lessons that I learned as an organizer uh, I was uh, a college student in the in the early to mid 1990s. In fact, I first met Diane um, as a student in her class. Uh, Diane was teaching in her very first, uh, I believe it was her first quarter at UC Santa Barbara, at, at, around the time that might have been one of my last quarters at Santa Barbara. Um, it was an Asian American women in feminism class. And uh, that's where uh, I first encountered not just Diane, uh, but I think for me, um, an approach to ethnic studies that was really deeply rooted in um, a kind of a scholar activist perspective. I had taken other ethnic studies courses prior to Diane's, but I think it was really only in Diane's class where not only uh, were we learning about issues uh, affecting uh, the topic of the course of Asian American women, but issues uh, uh, affecting Asian American women, we were learning about feminism and we were also being invited to engage. I mean, that was um, really key. I think the thing that 
Diane brought to the classroom was always an invitation to not simply learn and dive deeply into a topic, but uh, she always provided us opportunities um, and options to engage. So the very, very first rally I had ever attended in college was um, by the invitation by, of Diane. Uh, and it was to uh, join with the Korean Immigrant Workers Advocates, or KIWA, which at the time was organizing around uh, in support of immigrant, um, Asian immigrant garment workers. They had a specific campaign um, against uh, uh, one particular uh, garment manufacturer, Je Jessica McClintock, who at the time was sort of known uh, as sort of uh, the uh, wedding dress and prom dress uh, 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 manufacturer it was sort of like in the 90s, you, you went to, to Jessica McClintock to get sort of your, your dress for, for the, the junior senior prom or a wedding dress. And, um, you know, that was uh, the what what came what the organizers of Kiwa were, were raising issues around was the fact that despite the fact that these dresses were so highly, um, incredibly pricey, very, very expensive. Uh, Asian immigrant workers were working um, in uh, LA in switch up conditions, uh, really, really earning just a very small fraction um, of the overall price of, uh, of a dress. Uh, and so, you know, again, I think that um, Diane, Diane's uh, approach to teaching, again, not only just laying out what the issues were, but also giving us opportunities to engage in these issues was really important in my own conscientization as a young uh, student and as a rising uh, activist and organizer. And so my, my, uh, my book chapter really reflects on the time uh, that actually Diane and I were organizing together. Uh, Diane and I, after that very rally, uh, along with other students in that class, ended up coming together to to form an organization called Asian, the Asian Sisters for Ideas and Action Now. Um, and uh, that organization engaged in a number of campus-based issues, as well as issues that were affecting um, kind of the California communities uh, during that time. There were a number of uh, propositions being introduced um, to the California electorate that were uh, anti-Black and anti-Brown. And our organization was really active in trying to raise awareness about those issues and also engaging the students, staff, and other faculty to, um, to resist uh, uh, these anti-Black and anti-Brown, uh, anti-working class measures. So again, you know, my chapter really reflects on this period of time in the 1990s when we're dealing with kind of uh, conservatism in the state of California, when we as students were trying to devise uh, new um, uh, ways of organizing, learning intergenerational lessons really from uh, or, uh, movement uh, organizers of the 60s and 70s and the 80s, and also trying to kind of craft our own um, our own ways of organizing. And so, I mean, I come. I tried to really distill some of the key lessons of um, that period of time for me uh, in this chapter. And two things I'll say now, and we can kind of uh, revisit this later in the Q&A, but the one was that um, one thing I really uh, valued about my time was that I really took advantage of being a student. And, you know, I think it was only uh, later after I graduated from um, UC Santa Barbara and uh, started working very closely with uh, some anti-martial law 
uh, activists, so people who are really active at, at the forefront of toppling the Marcos dictatorship in the Philippines. It was only uh, later on that they gave me sort of the analytic tools to actually even make sense of what we were doing as students. But one of the things we were doing as students is we were being students. And I think that that, and that was that um, we really applied ourselves to learning. And on one hand, uh, many of us were, 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 were really trying to conscientious to, to take courses with progressive faculty uh, taking full advantage of, of the tuition that we we're paying, being students, um, being in, in uh, an orientation where, you know, learning was sort of our, our kind of primary objective as students, taking kind of uh, these courses with all these faculty members. But we were also organizing autonomous, um, separate political education groups. And then that's one thing that I also valued about um, being a student. In part, you know, this was also through the guidance of, um, of our elders. Uh, Diane certainly played an important role, as well as her, her husband, Matef, in really encouraging us to form um, independent political education groups in addition to going to classes so that we can, uh, so we could um, take on some of the topics we were, we were approaching in class, but to, pro to approach those very, those same topics, but from an organizing perspective. In other words, you know, if we might be talking about neoliberalism in a class and its impacts, um, and people in the global south of the third world. It was one thing to kind of approach it academically in a classroom setting, yet, yet another thing entirely to think about it from this lens of organizing or even kind of um, centering in addition to academic analyses, say, of neoliberalism, which is something we were, we were studying a lot and trying to make sense of um, in the 1990s, especially with the North American Free Trade Agreement or NAFTA, uh, the Chiapas uh, rebellion in, uh, of indigenous peoples in Chiapas. So this is, these are topics that were being talked about in class, but we wanted to approach it also in these, these independent uh, political education sessions where we'd also, again, not just get these sort of um, intellectual academic perspectives, but where we would even read from, from, uh, from kind of movement intellectuals or organizers themselves. So that was one kind of important lesson that I really, I, I speak to in, in this chapter, the importance of study, that students ought to really do the work of studying in and outside of the classroom, because it, this may be the only opportunity you'll have in your life, really, to, to do this kind of work, where you can really sharpen your analytic tools. Another thing that I kind of talk about in the book is the importance of both autonomous kind of student organizing and organizing within the context of kind of formal student organizations on campus. And that is, you you know, students are, are so, you, you have access to these resources, right? Um, obviously meeting space, um, but just access to other people your age and even access to organizations. So you have a chance to really kind of hone um, your organizing skills, even in these sort of uh, student organizations that get funded by the student government, say, but also there's an importance to organize autonomous spaces outside of them as well, because oftentimes these student organizations, especially uh, this is true in many, many college campuses in response to the radicalism of students in the 1960s and 70s, um, often created ways uh, such kind of uh, created spaces on campus or institutionalized spaces that often just uh, kind of um, 
de-radicalized uh, students in many ways, right? Find it would be, they became mo uh, ways of sort of containing student radicalism. So on one hand, there's a, there's an importance of engaging in those uh, those organizational spaces as a learning experience, and yet also kind of being outside of that. So this inside outside is a sort of theme that kind of comes up a lot in my particular chapter that I invite folks to read, I hope. The second piece I wrote, which was a very hard piece to write, was the epilogue. And that was uh, because, you know, as we were co uh, coming towards the end of production for this book, my son, uh, who was 22 years old at the time, uh, died uh, in the Philippines while he was serving Indigenous peoples. Um, I took, you know, the, the epilogue uh, really is a reflection on him and his student organizing. Um, and some of the lessons I learned even kind of uh, as a mother um, to, to a child who kind of both took uh, my, my life lessons um, and the lessons of his father, who was also, uh, who was also an organizer, um, and then also kind of taught me many, many new things, I think, just in his own praxis. And so Mato, uh, among the many things that he did, he was biracial. Uh, he, he, was, he, he was very much inspired and got very active in the Black Lives Matter uh, or the Movement for Black Lives movement um, already in high school, uh, took a lead in an anti-gentrification campaign um, and won in um, Oakland, California, uh, where he was born and, uh, and where he spent his high school and early college years. And he was also very much an internationalist, uh, really uh, inspired by the indigenous people struggle in the Philippines wanted to learn from them directly and decided to leave college at the age of 20 and to continue his study uh, by kind of living alongside and working with indigenous people in the Philippines until the pandemic. And um, between just the very, very uh, uh, restrictive ways that the Duterte regime um, kind of uh, managed uh, COVID, which basically limited people's travel into island, which ultimately prohibited, uh, prevented him from being able to get medical help. He basically died from food poisoning. Um, and uh, and uh, later, um, and so, you know, the, the epilogue really is a reflection on, on his contributions as a Gen Zer. And, um, and you know, I think uh, Diane didn't mention it, but I, I think we should just say, you know, that for both Diane and I, I think when we were writing this anthology, I think we, we were very much, uh, thinking about this uh, this young generation or Gen Z, uh, both Diane and I had children in that generation. And I think we're both kind of con reflecting on, and, and we teach a lot of Gen Zers. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think the reflection on Amato's life uh, seemed like a really a, a appropriate way to kind of bookend the book as we sort of start kind of thinking um, from an intergenerational lens uh, of the liberation movements in the 60s and 70s, how they've shaped us and how uh, these liberation movements kind of live on in the activisms of today, and then kind of ending it then with a motto, who represents really a, um, kind of this, uh, this generation's um, uh, uh, kind of uh, organizing trajectory, or sort of the, the new trajectories of, um, of these movements. Because I think what's important is, I think for both Diane and I, we see the liberation movements of the 60s and 70s as not, 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 not um, being non-existent. They may not exist in the same sorts of ways, but I think we both recognize that through the relationships built intergenerationally, there's so many ways in which um, the kind of ethos and the principles of these early liberation movements continue um, to live on in the movements of today and in these new generations. 
even as they are kind of transforming and, and shifting, you see a lot of core principles and analysis and um, even kind of organizing lessons still being relevant even till this day. So thank you um, again for everyone for joining us. And I look forward to hearing now from you, Russell, great our community. Hey, thank you. I was really moved by what everyone had to say. And, uh, you know, I'm, I was really not an activist, but I just have been involved in various things uh, uh, throughout my life. Um, as uh, Robin said, it's important to be a student. And I think in 1968, which was my first semester in college at SF State, I partly joined the strike because I did not have to attend classes. And that was under S.I. Hayakawa. And of course, you know, we marched around in the fog. And uh, by not attending classes, we actually helped to create better classes because uh, as a result of the strike, of course, uh, there were the first classes in Asian American studies. And I remember actually being able to take a class in Mexican philosophy, uh, which did not exist, you know, before the, the, the strike. And also being born and raised in Chinatown, I had really never thought about other people that much until I went to uh, college and uh, basically uh, became friends with uh, Black, Latino, uh, Chicano, uh, Native American uh, uh, people. So, you know, it was an eye opener for me, but that was, you know, a long time ago. But listening to what you had to say now, I wanted to just, um, I had a few particular questions uh, because out of my own curiosity, um, and I'd like to just go in partly in maybe in the order of the the way in which people actually uh, spoke. Um, so Diane, you know, you, you're a prolific writer and an editor and, uh, you know, myself being an editor, when Black Lives Matter came around and then the ensuing, of course, uh, not exactly connected, but the uh, anti-Asian hate stuff, it really threw me for a loop. I said to myself, well, Asian American studies really hasn't, even though we've had, we have 50 years of uh, producing materials, classes, and so forth, maybe we have failed because uh, we, we really haven't gotten our history, our lessons to, to other people. And I wanted to just paraphrase uh, something. I think Helen Zia has an acronym, uh, phrase called, I think, M-I-H, missing in history, that Asian Americans have been missing in history. But uh, I wanted to just tweak it a little bit and call it M-I-A, missing in activism. So, I mean, in a sense, uh, until people like uh, uh, Yuri, uh, Carl Yoneda, and many other people started writing, uh, and we were able to record their activism, uh, Asian Americans, you know, for the most part, we're missing in activism in terms of our of what we learn as students. So, Diane, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, now, you know, with the institutionalization of Asian American studies and publishing and books and so forth, um, we have educated, been able to educate many people. But I'm just going to be a devil's advocate. Are we speaking to ourselves, ourselves only? Uh, with the anti-Asian hate and with these all these uh, uh, certain type of media interests in Asian Americans, it seems like we are we are kind of having to repeat a lot of the things that we have uh, studied, written about, and so forth. 
for the last 50 years. So it's really um, a little bit discouraging. Uh, your book, of course, uh, and all of you who have contributed is, you know, sort of as an uh, antidote to, to this, uh, one of the, you know, hopeful signs. But I'm wondering, um, have we really done our job? I mean, we've had 50 years to, you know, do this educational stuff in terms of Asian American studies. So, well, Diana and, and Robbins is, uh, you know, as the co-editors, you know, it's wondering what you uh, thought. Yeah. Thank you, Russell. Um, so much for this question, right? That is a hard one. That's making us look very critically and reflectively at ourselves as a, as a field of Asian American studies, right? As the Asian American movement, as individual activists and scholars. And I, I appreciate this question. I think that I would respond to it kind of connecting two levels, right? One is the individual or the field, like what have we done, right? And the other is going to look structurally about what's happening, for which I don't think we take full responsibility. But in terms of the field, I do think that, and Robin and I talked about this some in our Amerasia Journal special issue on Asian American activism, and we're very grateful to the current um, UCLA Asian American Studies Center Director Karen Umemoto for inviting us. And of course, Russell, you were the editor of Amerasia Journal for years and years. Um, so that, the fact that that journal exists has been crucial to our um, study and the production of knowledge around Asian American activism. So Robin and I were invited to, to look at activism. And so this is another way to hope to get it out, right? To get to amplify knowledge that gets out into the mainstream. At the same time, in that issue, we were saying that in other fields like Black Studies or Chicano-Chicano Studies, activism is really, I think the study of activism is really central. In Asian American Studies, justice issues and uh, critiques of power is really central. But the study of our own activism, I think, has been far too long um, on the margins. And we are trying to bring that into the center. And we were arguing that there actually is an emerging area that we're calling Asian American activism studies. So I hope we're arriving. If we are arriving, then it's probably a confluence of many things. One is the work that activists and scholars did way back in the Asian American movement 50 years ago. And again, UCLA Asian American Studies Center produced things like Roots. Right, that really important anthology that got used in Asian American studies classes. Amerasia Journal, which I already mentioned, which has for years and years produced information on activism. Right, so I think that, that our field is pushing this out and helping to have it being done, even if it needs to do more. Right, But also, I think the what's happening in the larger um, society often makes change. Right. Sadly, what we do in social movements push things forward. We might keep ideas alive. We're, new new generations of people are getting that organizing training, so that when those opportunities arise, we're ready to take advantage of them. But it seems to me that oftentimes structurally, that's how those we sometimes create those opportunities, but then they also present themselves. So, for example, you know, environmental justice around fossil fuels has been going on for a long time. But then in the last wave of, of, of increased gas, no, I'm not talking about today, I'm talking about the last wave in which gas prices rose dramatically, 
it helped to propel the, the environmental justice movement, right? So it takes both activists, scholars pushing this forward, but also what happens in society is also there. And so along with that, I think that model minority trope and narrative has been so damaging as so many people have talked about, right? And I think that it's been used to suppress Asian American activism because learning about Asian American activism does different work than learning about say black activism or Chicano activism precisely because of our racial positioning in society as model minorities, right? And when you take the wool off, when you take the covers off of that, right? When you reject that trope, you're also rejecting the ideas that of meritocracy, right? That we, 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 we gain upward mobility simply on our own achievements, right? And it, and it shows the need for activism and it shows the need to not discipline black movements, right? As, as they were becoming, turning to black power at the moment that 1966, the moment that that model minority trope gets popularized, right? And it embraces black power in ways um, and, and ideas of self-determination. Um, so this is a long way to say <laughs> that I think that there is more work that needs to be done. I think we've fallen short in the ways you're talking about, Russell, but I think we shouldn't also um, discount the, the ways that the last 50 years of both organizing, right, in social movements and the kinds of knowledge produced in Asian American studies and in Asian American studies publications has really helped to shift and so that when a moment like Atlanta happens, there, there are people and, 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 and uh, we're ready to respond. And, and we did, and we have. Yeah, thank you for the question, Raspa. I think um, to add to what Diane has said, I think, um, though, too, it's also true that um, Asian American studies as a field um, has also drifted pretty, and I think this might be equally true to some extent for the other ethnic studies fields as well, uh, maybe, um, I, I, or maybe it's sort of uneven depending on kind of uh, institutional site um, and just the types of people who are engaged. But but I do think that it is true that um, while, yes, we uh, Asian American studies has, has been around for 50 years, part of our survival for over over 50 years now has meant um, having to comply and conform to some extent to the demands of, uh, of academia and the university. That is that um, our survival uh, depended on us looking and feeling and conducting ourselves much like um, our colleagues um, in, in kind of uh, in adjacent fields, sociology, you know, English, literature, uh, history, etc. So what that has meant is that um, in as much as um, you know, it is true, and, you know, Diane and I did kind of, you know, speak to that in the Amerasia special issue. There's an emerging interest now in kind of Asian American activism studies. Um, it is also true that how most uh, scholars are being trained um, and approach these kinds of studies has been from that kind of um, arm's length, kind of very scholarly perspective. In other words, to what extent we in the field are um, kind of the intellectuals of the movement 
or you know to what extent you know we're um, actively uh, kind of working in collaboration um, with folks on the ground in trying to help to articulate um, and make sense of and analyze kind of issues uh, in ways that can help to advance movement work in very kind of intentional and conscientious ways. I don't know to what extent uh, we're doing that work. I think that um, you know Diane and I have are really striving to do that in both this anthology and in the Amerasia special issue, uh, we approach this anthology in particular in collaboration with organizers. Um, you know, uh, Diane described the process a bit uh, at the very beginning, but you know, we um, we organized to uh, you know we could have approached this in many different ways. We could have just privileged kind of academics thinking about and writing about activism, but uh, and we do that you know in our Amerasia special issue. But we also, in this particular anthology, we wanted to center the knowledges um, of organizers themselves. And we helped to create conditions such that we could support them in their an analysis and their writing of, of their work, right? So I guess I do share some of your uh, worry, Russell, that, you know, that maybe we have failed or maybe there are ways that uh, we haven't uh, been able to sustain, I think, some of that early promise and excitement of the field, you know, I think you know, the kinds of things that were being written about and taught in the early, early years of Asian American studies are, don't feel uh, like much, you know, I think they'd be very, very, you know, they, they're not very much like what we're seeing in kind of the classroom today. Um, which is not to say, though, that there isn't still a value in the, the work that we're doing. Uh, I think that there's absolutely still such an important work that we do um, even if we've had to make some concessions, even if we've had to kind of um, institutionalize ourselves in certain kinds of ways, uh, we do know, you know, that it is also true that many of the people who are at the helm of a social movement organizations now, nonprofits, community-based organizations, many of them are people who come through our classrooms or our kinds of classes. So um, ethnic studies, you know, um, Asian American studies is still incredibly powerful. Uh, and it is also true that we are dealing with kind of these structural uh, forces that that make it challenging, right? Uh, you know, I mean, part of the struggle in the university is we are dealing, we we have to operate within the context of, of this neoliberal imperial university, right? The fact that we can survive for 50 years, even if it has meant kind of giving and taking, um, our survival is still also a testament of kind of the strength of our organizing within uh, the university. Um, is it true, yes, that there, there seemed to be sort of uh, the, the response to the organizing around anti-Asian hate, oh, well, the, the, re the existence of anti-Asian hate or discrimination might seem like a failure of, the, of movements. I think it's more, it speaks more to kind of how, uh, you know, white supremacy, these structures of uh, kind of structural racism and, um, and, you know, and, and, and our need to kind of organize and, and re recognize that these are, these are incredibly powerful forces at play. But, you know, um, you know, it's really been exciting. Again, I, I want to, you know, just speaking uh, to the fact that, um, you know, I think there's lots of really new um, work happening in the Asian American community. As I, I, I stated earlier, I'm part of an organization that was born out of COVID, born out of you know, rising anti-Asian hate and discrimination. And so I do think that we're seeing, um, um, 
new kinds of organizing in the Asian American community that's also quite promising and exciting. But but I hear you on kind of feeling like, you know, where where we've been here for this long. Um, have we made an impact? I guess I would say yes, we have, but we're also, you know, we we are we definitely are faced with some considerable um, challenges. Um, you know, have we changed in the university? We have. Um, you know, are there possibilities for shifting what we, how we do things? I think there's, you know, we're trying to do that. I think Diane and I, um, but yeah, I, I hope that this, this, uh, this is helpful in terms of, uh, addressing that question, Russell. It's, it's a great question. Actually, uh, I just wanted to just say one small thing. I think that Peter Kang in the Massachusetts area, he's had a very interesting Asian American studies program. What they do is actually work with the Southeast uh, uh, well, with the South Asian community, uh, I think mainly Vietnamese in the area, and they actually work with K-12. So their Asian American Studies program actually filters down to the K-12, and they actually have trained and worked with K-12 people, and some of them are actually now teaching at the college level in in uh, uh, Peter Kang's program in Massachusetts. So that's a way of extending Asian American Studies beyond the colleges, actually working at the K-12 uh, level. Then the other thing I was going to mention is that in the earlier days of Asian American studies, we had many more community practitioners who were actually teaching classes and uh, were, uh, and so forth, but now much less. And also, you know, we have so many qualifications and people have to have so many degrees in order to kind of step foot. Sometimes they are guest lecturers, uh, but that's about it. So, you know, I mean, I think before at places, even at, uh, at Davis, at SF State, especially in the state college system, uh, we were a lot more uh, kind of open. So, you know, those structural things. And also there were such things, uh, not only in the Asian community, there were like free universities. So things like free universities of, of law and alternative sort of educational structures. So as Asian American studies has become more institutionalized, I think these alternative things, uh, structures have been uh, kind of, you know, left on the wayside. But, you know, uh, moving on to uh, Javid, I'm, I'm really, uh, I was really moved by your, by what you had to say about victories and step back and step back. For every victory, there's also, you know, uh, some small defeat. So, uh, Javid, are you there? Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to just, I just had two questions. I was really amazed that you had, you said you had 20,000 union members in 100 countries, including places like uh, Bangladesh and other countries. Uh, 60 uh, to 70 percent uh, Muslim. And I was wondering, since, you know, these countries have different governments and different kind of uh, social conditions, um, how the um, how the union sort of adapts to these uh, conditions. And then the second question I had was, since uh, Uber is a very tech-driven type of uh, um driving, um, what do you call it, institution, and whereas the taxi driver probably has been traditionally much less based on these uh, technical things, how do you actually, is it possible, how do you, do they kind of overlap, or uh, how do you actually um, work with those two different kind of uh, structures? So anyway, those are my two questions. One is on the, uh, you know, the membership in other countries with different governments, different uh regulatory policies and so forth. And the other is about the role of kind of tech in the future, in your future struggles. 
Yeah, it, it is really interesting as uh, we have uh, 30,000 members now. We reach to 30,000 members. As I told you, that we have over 100 countries' uh, members. Yeah, every country has their different way to fight back for the justice. Some people just want to go to the courts. Some people just want to come to the road. Some people want to go strike. Uh, some people want to reach out to some uh, officials through that. No, it is uh, every country people have different kind of a mentality. Like uh, we have some uh, uh, Russian states and Russian peoples, that kind of, they have their totally different kind of strategy. Our South Asian, they wanted to come out uh, to the streets to fight back. And that's way. So the way we started it, we are not, uh, before we were organizing drivers, when you go to the airport uh, parking lot, every ethnic group was standing differently. The Pakistani was standing on this side, uh, Haitian driver was sitting on this side playing games, Indian was on this <laughs> side. So that's kind of what we brought, we, gave, we brought together to them on the behalf of that we have one license, which is a, 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 under the Taxi and Limousine Commission. And this is our livelihood. This is our job. We have to get together because of this, our job. So we, that's why when we were doing our strike, we were telling to the driver, listen, if you stop on a red light, if you look on a right, if there is a, for example, I'm Pakistani. If there is a right side of his Pakistani guys uh, standing there, and uh, on the left side, uh, African Afro-American guys uh, driving a cab, instead of talking to Pakistani drivers, you should speak to Afro-American drivers. That are you going to strike? Are you showing your solidarity? That's the way they they, they bring these things together because people are gonna think, oh, might be. Pakistani will go to the strike, but Bangladeshi will not go. Bangladeshi is going to think, oh, we will go to strike. Maybe African will not go. So that's the way we build up this relationship uh, among those uh, different ethnic groups uh, uh, together. Before, in the beginning, we were making our flyers in different languages. And uh, we were going to different ethnic groups, uh, restaurants, and different uh, ethnic groups, uh, places. But slowly, slowly, Everybody is now in English and we have a media. We are using the uh, latest media tools, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, website, and uh, calling them through our robocalls and so. That's the way we are bringing those all together, especially also when, uh, as uh, 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 Diane and Robin was talking about hate, yeah, we also had a first time this kind of uh, uh, experience before the hate uh, was uh, hate crime was or uh, um, uh, was only for uh, black and white. But then after we felt it's also because of a religion base after especially after nine one one that uh, things comes out because uh, and during that time we have a lot of a uh, uh, that uh, cabs got vandalized and. Uh, especially Sikh Punjabi peoples, they got beaten by because they were wearing turban. So a lot of people don't know geography and they don't know the difference between Taliban turban and uh, Sikh people turban. It's a totally different religion. 
So we start a campaign uh, talking to the public. Um, we have we make uh, some flyers given to the cab driver that they can give to their uh, passenger. We want go through all media. And New Yorkers are very, very intelligent people. And slowly, slowly, we took over on that. Also, uh, after uh, this COVID things, the crimes comes against uh, Asian people because they think that they created this uh, COVID, but they don't know that these are different things. And also, when uh, uh, President Trump had a Muslim ban, Taxi Worker Alliance was the first people who right away announced that we're going to shut down airport. We, were there, we, 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 we called to our members only for one hour, shut down. But when we did it in one hour, we shut down the airport, but this was continuously going on till morning. Thousands of uh, other people came for solidarity. There's USCLA people were there at uh, airports. And taxi drivers, they didn't they stop in the parking lot. Uh, they didn't go to pick up the passenger. So this solidarity, we feel for each other in the Harvard Union, regardless any religion, regardless any ethnic, regardless any uh, political uh, views, we are not talking about that. We're talking about our own problem, that how we can fight better. As I said, that uh, uh, Uber try to divide us a lot. But we start a campaign bringing both parties, Uber and Yellow Cab Driver together. And we were uh, able to convey our message that these companies are making money from our hard work. That these, to make Uber successful in the beginning, these are the Yellow Cab Drivers who left Yellow Industry and go to Uber. But then more and more drivers keep coming they were loading their money to, to drivers and to making profit for themselves. So that uh, our message uh, we convey to our drivers. So we have a, uh, in 30,000, we have 50% Uber driver. We have 50% yellow cab and green cab drivers because they all have a, only one license. Before it was two different licenses, but now it is one license. So they feel by themselves, yes, if we are united with union, Union is going to solve our problem. They try to make us apart together because, as I told you before, Uber created an IDG, Independent Driver Guild, and who are saying drivers, oh, we are organizing uh, Uber drivers, taxi worker licenses only for yellow cabs. No, it's not right. If tomorrow something going to happen, IDG is going to stand with Uber company, not with driver, because they are making money from them. To us, drivers are running. It's drivers who pay their membership and we got 75% or 85% revenue through the driver. So we have to stand with driver. It doesn't matter which country, which religion, which car they drive. So that's uh, uh, to solidarity among Uber and uh, yellow cab drivers. We are very much successful to bring together on one platform. Okay, no, thank you. Are you both uh, sharing, able to share some of the technical kind of innovations uh, that, uh, you know, that, or the, the ways in which these companies use tech, or do you look at it as sort of, uh, um, how would you say, it, a negative influence for your struggles? 
like for instance the the Uber algorithms and all the stuff that they use. I mean, I don't know whether taxi drivers also use that. Yeah, there is a, also for yellow cab. There is a, a curb uh, app that people use the curb apps. That's for yellow cab drivers. And recently, Uber announced that they're gonna share their app with yellow cab driver also. They did it before in the beginning. And in the beginning, they started with yellow cabs. And uh, the more that every uh, passenger was getting yellow cabs. But when they start FHV cars, Uber, their own cars bring in market, they slowly, slowly put in a gray. So if uh, somebody wants, it, for the yellow cab, it go gray. Or they were asked, okay, if you want a yellow cab, pay us $1 more. So people didn't want to pay. So they were totally went to Uber. So their tricks, we know their tricks. They are, how they were doing. And now they, they are saying, okay, we can give a, a, a access to a, of our app to yellow cab driver. We said, okay, but we want what is the uh, meter fare for yellow cab drivers. We want that money from Uber. And for Uber drivers, we want 85% what they get from the passenger. Nowadays, what's the way Uber is playing tactics? They're charging passenger different money, but they are giving to drivers by the mileage very less money. My, that's our fight is going on, and we denied it that we're not going to work with Uber app, yellow cab drivers, unless they pay them uh, uh, by the meter money. And we are pushing uh, Uber driver that they should uh, uh, stand with us for this demand that uh, Uber should get only 15% uh, commission, but they get money from a passenger. From that money, they should give 85% to drivers. So we have, uh, we have a lot of campaigns going on about that. No, this is uh, great. And, you know, I wish you uh, more victories and setbacks. And <clears throat> the next time uh, we can discuss uh, like China, uh, as you know, you know, they have oh, a huge is... uh, population of uh, yeah, not you are drivers, about, it's a political people. thing. Uh, recently, maybe all over the world know what's happening in Pakistan. Right, and right. Uh, yesterday that uh, our ex-Prime Minister uh, Imran Khan, who was on uh, Twitter space, he broke the record that uh, how this Western world is... Uh, affecting on other people's countries who right. are uh, not uh, becoming their slaves. So right, they, right. we know that this kind of thing is going on. Okay, well, next time, next, next victory. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, all right, let's turn to Eddie. I hate to say it, but my only experience, which was a really interesting one, when I was in San Quentin, uh, I think when I was a student, it's about 1971, and at that time, they had a, what they called a, something like Asians Rising. It was sort of a cultural group of community groups. And, you know, uh, in San Quentin, they had the Blacks, they had, I think, Martin Luther King Day. And for the Asians, they had a kind of like Asian New Year. So all the Asians in San Quentin, uh, whether you were uh, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, uh, some Latinos actually managed to get it because that's the day in which uh, you get this sort of Chinese fast food, like sort of Panda Express food, like egg rolls, chow mein, and stuff like that. But, you know, it was uh, pretty scary. I mean, even though I was uh, 
born and raised in Chinatown, just to walk into San Quentin, you had to pass through all these like barriers, uh, like moats, and it, it was not easy uh, to get in. And, you know, I I was really moved by what you said about education. You know, I didn't know that you had, a, that, that there was an ethnic studies program in uh, in the system that you helped establish. Is that what you were, that, is that what you said? And uh, my, my question is, you know, when I was working uh, with Asian American studies at UCLA, we actually sent, uh, regularly sent uh, books um, uh, to the prison, uh, prison systems. And, you know, people could not receive books from individuals, only from, I think, schools or, pub or, or, or institutions or publishers. And so I was, uh, my question is, I, uh, can people, uh, like people in educational institutions and uh, publishers, uh, Asian American studies, are books uh, still something in which is useful for education? Or, you know, maybe you can sort of talk about the future of education, you know, within the, within the prison system and it's uh, sort of its, its potential and whether it's only books now or whether uh, people can, are allowed to use internet and the web. Because uh, uh, you had mentioned that, you know, uh, through uh, reading and so forth, uh, like many others, uh, you know, uh, it kind of changed your your thinking uh, and so forth. So I, I was wondering whether you could elaborate a little bit more on, on uh, education uh, within the system and how uh, Asian American studies and how publishers can actually uh, become part of that uh, or do more today. Yeah, I mean, you know, with the prison system right now, uh, the, the way how COVID really impacts uh, the limited even access, right, with the outside world as well as, um, you know, the volunteers to go into prisons. Uh, you know, it, it's really a, it's the, the people inside are experiencing unprecedented time in dealing with survival. Meaning that many people are isolated or, and then they also are being locked up in a very uh, compact space, right? Uh, in a cell, in a dorm. And so that, you know, that, that is super challenging in a way to just to survive through that madness, right? And, and this pandemic. But in general, for many of the, uh, you know, we're talking about the prison system, you know, where the United States locked up more people than any, uh, countries in the world, you know, because we're number one in incarceration, that's a reflection of the lack of investment in our educational uh, institutions, right? Hence, you have overrepresented uh, people that who, especially people of color, who are in the prison system that has, that have been historically denied uh, an access to a quality education. And so therefore, most of the people that who are locked up in, inside uh, have a, a seventh, eighth grade reading level, right? And so hence the school to prison pipeline, but for the Asian American and, and many of the immigrants and refugees, is the forced migration as a result of the United States foreign policy, uh, then the school to prison and deportation pipeline, right, uh, in, in that sense. So education plays a huge role uh, in the prison system when people have a, a more like a captive kind of like an environment, if people are willing to engage, then that's how uh, they will find their mental freedom 
by studying the history of activism uh, about culture, right? That informs, you know, who, who they are as an individual. So that's why uh, in the inside, it's not so much of how people are able to have access to the information, but it's how the system is denying the people's humanity and denying people the opportunity to get an education. So that's why historically you will see the Malcolm X, the George Jacksons, you know, many of the people uh, that who cultivate those type of knowledge, right, within the system and to be able to find that liberation uh, in that process. And so therefore, uh, when we were able to, you know, when you're able to learn, you gain power, you gain confidence, you gain this critical analysis about the conditioning uh, of, of the system. And therefore, when, you, when we're trying to exercise those type of power, then the administration is trying to disempower people, right? You, you're talking about how, uh, you know, in the pedagogy of the oppressed, uh, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's how uh, the people who have power don't want to share their power with you, right? So therefore, uh, we have to do it in, in, by any means necessary to find that access to education. And therefore, the Roots Program which is an acronym for restoring our original true selves that is that was co-founded by the prisoners inside San Quentin because they wanted to learn about their history and their culture because they were disconnected because he was never taught in the schools when they were going to the school system, right? And it's definitely not uh, being taught inside a prison setting. And so therefore uh, we have to fight for even having that access to our learning our own culture and history. And then, so through that process, it's about learning about other people's culture and history, right? That's why I always talk about the importance of tapping into the chi. And the chi that I'm, I'm sharing is not just so much of the breath that's sustaining our lives, but it's really culture and history and identity right, so where we can humanize each other. And then that's, that's where, where the process uh, talking about. And that goes back to a, a little bit about a question that, that Sonia Adam was asking, you know, even in the question and what, what, uh, you know, Robin was responding to is that we people have to, for when it comes to access to Asian American activism and histories, um, we have to fight uh, tooth and nail, right, in the educational system uh, to get those curriculums being even taught in the institution. And so, when historically it's been denied in the K to twelve, when you go to the university or community colleges. Uh, Many of the students, even if they're in the college student level, they still don't have access to uh, the Asian American history and culture and activism, right? Because it's not being uh, taught in those spaces. And you and we're talking about this in different region of this country, right? In California, you would think that you know we're more progressive that we have that already in place, but people are still fighting for it, right? Um, and so, therefore, I think the, the importance of uh, is that how do we organize? Right? How do we make sure that we're not organizing only ourselves, but we organize along with other people of color, right, to address the injustice that is institutional and that is perpetuated by white supremacy and, and racism. And that is the commonality that we have to stay focused on and not really being allowed the system to continue to divide and separate us and drive a wedge uh, between us to be able to uh, find this collective power right, in, in this process. So I think um, 
prison is one of those places that um, we had to engage of the, the people uh, so we can make sure that when when we're talking about uh, humanizing each other, when we're talking about a collective liberation, that we're included the most marginalized uh, and displaced uh, populations. Okay, so are books still necessary or needed in the books is absolutely necessary inside of the institutions, right? But the challenge is how do you get the books inside? Because the system, the system was set up, uh, infrastructure is saying that in order for you to get these books, you have to go to a specific vendor. Yeah. I can't just send a book in and say, like, you know what? I'm going to send a book to a yeah, friend. Yeah, 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 yeah. We cannot do that, right? So then we have to find ways like East Wind Bookstore would be a good place, you know, in Berkeley, California, when we, in, in California prisons, what we do is we go to East Wind Bookstore and get them to send uh, the books through, you know, to the prisons, right? So it's very important for them. And they still don't have access to the internet, right? They may have structured email that is for, uh, for some prison that they allow people to have access. But still, uh, it's, it's about how do we create those type uh, pathways to educate people inside, you know, and and that is by you have to you have to go inside uh, to to be able to uh, gain that type of access, and you have to change policy, you have to organize and change policy, right? Um, and so that's just just to finish up by you know talk you know with, with Sonia's question. It's more so of when we're talking about how do we get other educators and and, and activists and stuff to you know to talk about and the post the and. Uh, Asian American activism and the studies. Um, you know, there's a lot of, that's the National Education Association, right? That the unions and there's different people that we have to be able to organize and change policies that prioritize the importance of how uh, ethnic studies, Asian American studies, gender studies, uh, and global studies are the core reason why the 1968 Third World Liberation Front is, uh, has came together to be able to push for is to the opportunity to be validated, right, as uh, individuals, as ethnic groups, as a collective uh, a community. And too often that, you know, we may be in the academia space or, you know, uh, as many of the professors and, and activists here, you know, that really connects to the global or the international uh, aspect of those type of struggle and injustices, but many, unfortunately, many of the, the, the people in our in our own community, in the activist community, are not connected to that international uh, struggle, right? And that's why we're being siloed and we're being uh, boxing uh, boxing ourselves in and become short sighted. Uh, if we just focusing on this is just a local or, or a national issue and not an international issue. Okay, just just a one one little uh, uh, follow. I wanted to ask, uh, in your work uh, in the prison system, do you? I mean, for every person that's incarcerated, they, they also have family, kin, friends, maybe husband, wife, whatever on the outside. So, does your work? Do you actually work with, you know, them as well? Uh, you know, the people that they they have left. That are people are not in prison, but outside, you know what I mean? Yeah, the people who are in prison on the outside, mentally and physically in some ways, uh, is that 
they're the lifeline to the people who are inside, right? And even the people that who have uh, ended up being deported, you know, and, and for the double punishment of deportation to the Philippines, to the, you know, to Southeast Asia, and they, the lifeline is the family. Family is the lifeline. And this is very clear in, in, uh, when we're talking about chattel slavery, when we're talking about the prison industrial complex and how uh, families, uh, you know, we talk about the people at the border, the Muslim ban, all of this is geared towards separating the family. When you separate the family, it perpetuates this intergenerational trauma that continues to uh, harm our community, right? And so from that aspect, uh, the Asian Prison Support Committee or API RISE or, you know, uh, different organizations uh, that who, who are focusing on how do we uh, do family unification and activate the families, the family members, right? Because a lot of times they, they're, if they don't have people to organize them, they just feel like only our family are having this a challenge in dealing with this issue. But once they start getting, being organized, they show up right, for their own family and for their community. And so that's why Asian American activism is so important. And these type uh, the books like the, like, like uh, this this book being edited uh, by Dr. Fugino and Rodriguez is that. Um, we need more of those, right, from all different ethnic groups. You know, we need more of those type of uh, historical contexts and, and strategies so we can continue to learn and, and hone our tools so we can be more effective in, in our organizing. Uh, just to add on to uh, the question by Sonia Adams, which was uh, how to get more information about K-12 uh, education uh, awareness to the schools and stuff. Uh, Illinois and New Jersey, the first two states to pass legislation to require Asian American history in K through 12 curriculum. Uh, New York State is in the midst of doing something like that. Uh, Florida, uh, Connecticut as well. Uh, on May 13th at the Research Institute uh, online as well, we're going to be inviting Stuart Kuo, who is the co-executive director of the Asian American Education Project. Uh, their website contains uh, a slew of online, free online uh, Asian American uh, history curriculum available to everybody, K-12. through uh, It's based on the PBS docu-series uh, Asian Americans. Uh, and in that, you can find out about other activists, including uh, there's a, a section about the uh, San Quentin prison, uh, Roots, and uh, uh, Mr. Zeng's uh, you know, uh, his project bringing that about uh, and the prison system in there. There's also uh, Larry Itliang and the Delano Grape, uh, you know, uh, worker strike uh, that many folks don't know about. Uh, that's available online too. And he'll be, they will be speaking uh, May 13th along with Make Us Visible, uh, a chapter group in different various states who are pushing for uh, legislators to pass legislation for K-12 uh, requirements in uh, classrooms. May I add on to that? Yeah, um, sure. Wealth of information. You know, we had the fight to get ethnic studies in the high schools, which is ongoing. But it seems like what's coming to the foe now that we've gotten it in many, you know, is to get the curriculum in the classroom. And it's so important that the, that curriculum has an ethnic studies perspective and analysis. It's not just bringing people of color in, but that this analysis that we have is there. And UCLA's Asian American Studies Center is uh, developing an API multimedia textbook that I do think is going to become the definitive go-to textbook 
um, that K through 12, well, high school teachers use to teach Asian American studies. It has Filipino farm workers, Vietnamese Americans, Japanese American incarceration. I'm fortunate enough to get to work on chapters on activism and on Yuri Kochiyama. There's a lot of, of stuff and they're really working with teachers and curriculum development specialists as well as kind of content experts to, to think about how we really bring Asian American studies into the high school classrooms. I think it's quite a challenge. I think we have the knowledge, but how do we bring it in pedagogically when people are so pressed to, for time to teach? But there's a good number of Asian American studies and ethnic studies curriculum development projects right now. And if you actually folks Google a uh, recent article by the LAist, L-A-I-S-T, uh, it lists, you know, different resources available. I want to thank uh, all our speakers for their great presentation, uh, Russell for leading an engaging dialogue. You can purchase the paperback copy of Contemporary Asian American Activism from the University of Washington Press website for $30. Uh, the link is available on our uh, website. Uh, uh, this talk's web page on our website. Uh, also, uh, Diane and Robin are giving a, a series of the talks based on their book for UCLA's Asian American Center. So they're doing that in May. Uh, with that, uh, everyone have a wonderful weekend. Uh, enjoy your Earth Day. Uh, please be environmentally friendly. Uh, and remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. Uh, thank you very much and good night.